Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. New York's history regarding slavery was a lot more complicated than you might imagine. In 1799, the state legislature passed the Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery, mandating that the children of slaves born after July 4th of that year were to be free once they turned 25 for women and 28 for men. Those born before that date would remain in service as indentured servants, but could not be sold. Although July 4th, 1827 was set as the date for final emancipation, making New York the first state to pass a law for the abolition of slavery, it wasn't until 1848 that slavery was finally abolished, and support for the abolitionist movement was not unanimous. Jonathan Daniel Wells, a professor of history at the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, describes that conflict in his new book, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery, and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. It's published by Bull Type Books and brings uh, Professor Wells to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. You write that despite that legislation, in actuality, New York was, quote, the most potent pro-slavery and pro-South city north of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, it was doing things to help keep slavery and the slave trade alive. In, in what ways? Well, uh, that's not a statement I, I make lightly, but it's certainly one that I think uh, bears out uh, the actual history. So, of course, New York City today is this wonderful, politically progressive, pluralistic, uh, and very lively and vigorous place where people from all around the world come and, uh, and make their living. Uh, unfortunately, though, it has a much uh, darker past, uh, and that's what I write about uh, in this book. And there's really a couple of uh, reasons for that. One, uh, much of Wall Street's wealth. And so the uh, areas uh, in lower Manhattan, the merchants, uh, the hotels, uh, all kinds of businesses and taverns, as well as the banks and the insurance companies, uh, they are growing powerful and wealthy in large part because of their ties to Southern slavery. And specifically, uh, all those uh, bales of cotton that are grown in uh, the South and harvested by enslaved people is being baled up and then sent to ports and markets all around the South. And then ultimately, uh, the raw cotton is going to be making its way to the textile mills of New England and the textile mills of uh, the United Kingdom. And that is facilitated by New York businesses. So they're making tremendous profits uh, in Wall Street um, and around uh, southern Manhattan uh, based on the facilitating of uh, the cotton trade with the South. So that's one but also, why the city. Go ahead. Sugar and tobacco as well. Absolutely. Um, and uh, there, there is a tremendous amount of money to be made in all of those industries. And uh, New York is helping to facil facilitate uh, all of that trade. And, and uh, the other so, thing, uh, and we can talk more about this if you'd like, but the other reason why New York is, in fact, uh, I argue, the most potent um, pro-slavery and pro-Southern uh, city north of the Mason-Dixon line is because it's so heavily weighted toward Democratic Party support. Hmm. And as your listeners will, will no doubt know, the parties are 180 degrees different from what they are today. In this period of American history, before the Civil War, the Democrats are the reactionary party when it comes to race, and they're the ones who dominate pretty much uh, New York City politics throughout most of uh, the 19th century. And much into the 20th century as well, until things changed and uh, a lot of Southern Democrats became Republicans. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but those uh, people, if they had been alive in the 1840s, 50s, uh, they would have been Democrats. If Donald Trump was uh, alive in the pre-Civil War period, he would have been a Democrat. And many of his followers would have been uh, totally uh, in line with that. And, and part of that is Tammany Hall, which uh, really maintains a very powerful grip on the white Irish working class. Uh, who are not only uh, fearing job competition from uh, people of color, but also very much uh, worried that they're going to be classed or placed at the same level as, um, as black people in New York City. 
So it's a very prosperous city because of its ties to the slave trade. It's also a very pro-democratic city uh, in the decades before the Civil War. So they were pitting Irish immigrants and other struggling white people against black people? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, of course, but was this uh, because was this because they were uh, racist or simply because they saw it as being the economically sensible thing to do? Well, it's probably a, a, a bit of both. Um, you know, these things are kind of hard to unwind. Uh, but, you know, regardless, the Democratic Party, in order to maintain its control over New York City, uh, is telling the Irish working class, you know, thousands upon thousands of whom have, who have come over uh, across the Atlantic in the 1840s and 50s, uh, that, um, you know, they have their interests at heart, that the Democratic Party is where the Irish working class belongs, because that's the party that's not only going to uh, suppress uh, African Americans and therefore, you know, keep them from being grouped together with the Irish uh, white working class, but also, you know, the competition for jobs. And there's a lot of competition because, you know, the factories, the warehouses, uh, all of the ships that are docking in the Battery and East River and Hudson River, they all need to be loaded and unloaded. So there's a lot of competition. Uh, and uh, the Democratic Party, particularly headed by a Tammany Hall political machine, is all too willing to uh, use race as a wedge uh, to, um, you know, uh, make sure that the Irish working class doesn't see its uh, allies in New York City's black community. And the, the clearest manifestation of that, as many of your listeners will know, of course, is the draft riots in July 1863, in which literally Irish uh, mobs, men, women, and children, roving through the alleyways and streets of Manhattan in search of black victims. And there are uh, black people who are hung from lampposts, and who are violently murdered in other ways. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a very uplifting history, uh, but it's one that's, um, you know, certainly part of not just the city's history, but American history more generally. A network of, of judges, lawyers, police officers, and people from Wall Street came to be called the New York Kidnapping Club, the, which is uh, what gave you your title. They were leading the resistance. Um, how did the group get its name? Wasn't it named by a black abolitionist journalist? Yes, that's right. Uh, his name was David Ruggles, and um, he is just a, a remarkable figure in the city's history. Somebody who really deserves to be much better known and appreciated than he is today. Uh, Would you say that Ruggles is the hero of your book? Yeah, I would say that for sure. Um, and, and intentionally so. In fact, you know, he is a journalist, as you mentioned, and he uh, writes this uh, newspaper called The Mirror of Liberty, and he, and he publishes and prints it. And in the pages of this newspaper, David Ruggles reveals in striking detail all of his interactions with the kidnapping club and his efforts to promote racial and, and social justice in the city before the Civil War. He's the one, as, as you suggest, who calls them the New York Kidnapping Club, and he calls them out by name. He is absolutely fearless. Uh, he is tireless. He is constantly roving the streets of Brooklyn and Manhattan for any signs of people being uh, kidnapped as runaways. Uh, he roves the, uh, the ports all along uh, the, the tip of southern Manhattan. And... Um, he identifies the New York Kidnapping Club as, you know, not really a social club where people sort of got together and, and um, you know, engaged with one another socially, but in fact uh, created this well-efficient, uh, well-run machine that cheapened uh, black lives and made uh, freedom for black New Yorkers extremely fragile and precarious. Now, whom were they kidnapping? Uh, you know, were they these free and free as well as fugitive African Americans? That's correct. Uh, the law, and this is that stipulated in the Constitution of the United States, is called the Fugitive Slave Clause, and then that was reinforced by a law passed by Congress in 1850. You know, arguably the worst law ever passed by Congress, which is saying a lot, mm -hmm. uh, that reinforced it. 
And that necessitated the return of so-called runaways, people who had emancipated themselves from slavery in the South and somehow had made it to a precarious freedom in the North. The problem was, uh, how do you know what somebody's uh, original status is? Uh, do you, how do you know whether somebody is, in fact, Joe Smith, who ran away from a plantation five years ago, or, in fact, is Joe Lockley, who had been born in New York, to free parents? And that's the, the loophole. That's the ambiguity in which the members of the kidnapping club, including police officers, uh, Judge uh, Richard Riker, and professional slave catchers and lawyers, that's the, that's the ambiguity that they use to arrest anybody that they can in remotely consider uh, a runaway. And you didn't have to have really any solid evidence. You could just go in the testimony of one white person. There's no real trial in place until the 1840s. And so, uh, unfortunately, as David Ruggles tells us, in the 1830s especially, uh, the New York Kidnapping Club, um, driven by the police force and by the legal system, are able to kidnap scores of men, women, and children, not caring really whether they in fact were born free or under the law are runaways, and take them into Southern bondage. And, and one of the motives is money. Right? That's what I was going to ask. They're making money off this. Yeah. So, you know, all across the country, uh, your listeners will might know that there were runaway slave ads in newspapers. And you can see a lot of these. You can just Google you know, runaway slave ads, and you'll see what they look like. And they all offer rewards for the return of runaways. So the villain of the story is a guy named Tobias Boudinot, but along with his buddy Daniel Nash, both of them uh, are officers of the law, and the city recorder, which is a, a judge position um, that is headed by Richard Riker, uh, they are, um, you know, looking at these runaway ads and returning runaways to recoup uh, the reward. And even if it, there wasn't financial uh, compensation, they were all too willing to do this anyway, because as Democrats in the Democratic Party, they realized that um, in order to keep the union together, in order to keep the cotton flowing through the fingers of New York City's financiers, in order for all of that to um, continue to grow the wealth and power of New York City, uh, they had to compromise with the South over slavery. And so it's almost as if they're you know, placing these people as sacrificial victims uh, in order to keep the Union together, to appease you know, white Southerners. And um, so you know, there's kind of two motivations, money and the desire to abide by the Fugitive Slave Clause, which makes it pretty darn clear what their requirements are. Uh, under the Constitution. It is interesting that the Fugitive Slave Clause uh, has never been repealed, but then again, it was rendered moot by the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, but it's still on the books. Yeah, it's pretty pretty shocking. What's, what's um, remarkable, I suppose, when you're talking about New York City, which is, you know, really already known in, in the pre-Civil War period as one of the world's great financial capitals and one of the, the cities uh, that the United States is most proud of, even as late as the 1830s and the 40s, the kidnapping club, you know, is running at full tilt and uh, really terrorizes the black communities uh, of New York City before the Civil War. But, um, you know, there's, a, there's another side to this, too, which is as bleak and as dark and as depressing and horrifying all of this is, the black communities themselves in New York, uh, led by people like David Ruggles, fought vigorously, valiantly, tirelessly against all of the machinations of the kidnapping club. And we had vibrant, vigorous black communities, black neighborhoods all across the city, one of which, um, as you might um, know, was Seneca Village, which was wiped out to create uh, Central Park uh, on sort of the um, western side of Central Park. But these, uh, you know, are people, families, children who go to school, who are just being terrorized by this ruthless group of, uh, of officers and lawyers and slave catchers. And Ruggles, was also, Ruggles also founded the first black-owned bookstore in downtown Manhattan. 
and was the leader of the Committee of Vigilance. Yes, and um, I think if your listeners uh, would like to know more about David Ruggles, uh, there is a biography of him uh, done by a great historian named Graham Hodges, and it's such an interesting, enlightening biography of a guy that really, you know, even the most specialized historians have only barely heard of. But somebody who really deserves a, a much broader recognition among the, the current public. There is a plaque on Les Bernard Street where he had that bookstore you just mentioned. Uh, but if you, you know, if you don't look for it, you're going to miss it. And um, I think historians who value his kind of activism, uh, not just Graham Hodges, but also Eric Foner's new book, uh, Gateway to Freedom, which is a really valuable study of uh, slavery and, and the anti-slavery movement before the Civil War. He uh, also identifies David Ruggles. And uh, it would be great if we could we could kind of uh, acknowledge him a little bit more. But also, as you mentioned, the New York Committee of Vigilance. And this is a group of both black and white uh, New Yorkers who are opposed to slavery. It's a small group. Uh, we don't have any poll numbers or Gallup surveys, unfortunately. As historians, we wish we did. So we can't say, for example, in 1840, you know, 10% of the city's white population was anti-slavery. Um, but it's probably even smaller than that. It's a tiny fraction of a city that is extremely um, sort of uh, oblivious to the importance of black lives before the Civil War. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Jonathan Daniel Wells. His latest book is The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War, published by Bull Type Books. Uh, one of your previous books was about the origins of the Southern middle class and the movement of literature, ideas and people across the Mason-Dixon line. Were there many transplanted Southerners living in New York? Because New York has always been a melting pot. Yes, uh, there were. In fact, you know, we often think sometimes that we've got the, the northern section, right, the free states, and then we've got the southern section, uh, the slave states, as if there's you know sort of some sort of barrier or wall between them. But in fact, there's a tremendous amount of movement of uh, People coming to New York City from the South for business, uh, people coming to visit the city from all across the South, uh, white people I'm talking about, of course, who have the freedom and, and, and means to do this. And uh, this leads to, you know, one of the more surprising elements of the book, I think, and that is um, in the late 1830s, in the heart of Brooklyn, uh, David Ruggles hears about a possible case in which a couple from Savannah, Georgia, has moved to Brooklyn, at least, you know, for part of the year, and in fact taken their three enslaved people with them and were holding them as slaves in their home in the heart of Brooklyn. And Ruggles catches wind of this, and, you know, there's no bridges here, so he has to take the ferry over from, from his office on Les Bernard. And he knocks on the door. This is how, how fearless he is. He knocks on the door. Um, Mr. Dodge uh, is the Dodge family from Savannah. Mr. Dodge is not home, but um, his wife is there with the three enslaved people. And uh, Ruggles sees them in the basement through the front door, pushes his way past uh, Mrs. Dodge, and goes down to talk to the three uh, African-Americans who are there. And he very quickly finds out that, yes, in fact, they are being held as property, as enslaved people in the heart of Brooklyn, uh, that they're, you know, the effort is being made to keep it all quiet and hush-hush. And, and um, you know, Ruggles tells them, look, you know, you're free. You can't be taken into this, um, this city and held as enslaved people. And the, the Mrs. Dodge, the white woman who owns them uh, under the law, says... Well, you know, tell, tell the, Mr. Ruggles that you're really not uh, being held as property, that you're free to go anytime you want. And one of them says, well, that's what you told us to, to tell anybody who asked, uh, or else you'd beat us over the head. 
<laughs> so, you know, one of the reasons why these horrifying stories uh, I can tell today is because Ruggles, you know, recounts them in such vivid detail in his newspaper, The Mirror of Liberty. So what percent- not just do you have you know, white Southerners coming to live in New York, but in some extreme cases, they bring their enslaved property with them. What percentage of New York City's population was African-American in the early 1800s? Uh, I guess people who came as slaves, but also there were a fair number of free ones, weren't there? And there were even attempts to educate them. Uh, was it Hamilton or Madison who who set up uh, schools for, the, for young black uh, children? That's absolutely right. Uh, there was the African free school system. Uh, that helped educate uh, black children in the um, in the early 1800s. Um, the problem was that that even that didn't place them out of the reach of the kidnapping club. And one of the more troubling stories of the book is the story of of little Henry Scott, seven years old. Years old. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, really, really horrifying. Um, and he's at the African Free School at his desk uh, working, and then one day. Uh, in the 1830s, the school door bursts open. Two white men are there, and uh, they make it clear that they are there to arrest a seven-year-old boy for being a runaway. And they claim that he had been taken a few years before with his father, who was also an enslaved man, from uh, southern slavery into New York City to escape. And, uh, well, you can just imagine, you know, the pandemonium that erupts in the classroom, right? The, the small kids, the children are yelling kidnappers, kidnappers, and screaming and hiding under their desks and running out, the, out of the room. And uh, unfortunately, uh, at the apex of the legal system, determining whether somebody was in fact free or enslaved was uh, Richard Riker. Mm. And, um, the city recorder and a municipal judge. That's right. Yeah. He was a city recorder and uh, he was given uh, the task of determining whether somebody was free or enslaved. And again, you know, it's not like he cared very much. Um, He uh, was really more than happy to make um, sacrificial victims of black New Yorkers. And so... Henry Scott is put in prison along with his father, and uh, they are, um, you know, sort of waiting to hear whether they are going to be declared free or enslaved. And Riker actually allows uh, the uh, white slave owner to go back to North Carolina and, uh, you know, gather more evidence. And meanwhile, Henry and his father are sitting in Toombs prison. So, um, you know, there, there's a great deal of, of positive stories. David Ruggles, the African Free School, um, the Committee of Vigilance. Um, but, you know, it, unfortunately, all of those stories, even the most brightest ones, like the African Free School system that's established, also carry this, this, this sort of burden, this much bleaker history. But because of complications, uh, Henry, young Henry was freed. Uh, he was one of the lucky ones. So you tell... Uh, the stories of uh, many who are less fortunate, like Francis Shields, Abraham Gosley, Hester Jane Carr, John Lockley. Um, do we know how many people uh, were, were sent back by uh, judges like Richard Riker? We're never going to know exactly. And, and yes, it, it's a bit frustrating from the historian's perspective because we'd like to put a number on it, right? It's sort of how we we gauge uh, the extent of these things. But, you know, by nature, they are surreptitious, uh, almost secret. And in fact, at the height of the work of the kidnapping club, Tobias Boudinot and Daniel Nash, uh, officers of the law, could arrest somebody for being a runaway within uh, you know, a couple of hours, have that victim uh, standing before Richard Riker, who then declares them to be a runaway, and before the victim's family even notices they're missing, uh, that person is taken into Southern bondage. So were they sold? We'll never know. Were they sold, or did you have to? Did a slave owner have to prove that they had once been his slave? Well, in the 1830s, not much proof is required. Uh, hmm. All you had to do was say, "Okay, this is my enslaved person," and 
you know, the wheels would be set in motion. What really, and that's a really important question you ask, because what really leads to the decline of the kidnapping club by the 1840s is, in fact, uh, the institution of jury trials to determine whether somebody who is accused of being a runaway is, in fact, you know, John Smith, who was supposedly running away from Virginia, you know, three years ago. And uh, both sides were allowed to present evidence. And, um, you know, do you believe the testimony of a white slave owner who's going to be in a position to, you know, make potentially, you know, $1,000 in 1845 money? Um, do you believe the testimony of black people who are being brought to testify to the fact that they've known this person for 20 years? And so, you know, it's a little bit of, of a performance, a little bit of theater that's going on in the courts. But at least with the institution of jury trials, you can't any longer you know, whisk somebody off of uh, Broadway, take them before Riker, and, and before anybody knows about it, they're off to Southern slavery. So that helps a lot. But not just on Broadway. They weren't safe in their own homes or even when they were praying in church. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that if you were a black person in New York City before the Civil War, one of the things that you would have feared most is a knock on your door in the middle of the night. Um, because uh, very likely that would be somebody coming to do you harm, uh, specifically to take you away as a runaway. And Boudinot and the, and the other guys uh, were often knocking on doors in the middle of the night, and people would resist, and bloodshed would result. Boudinot himself is shot once. He stabbed another time. So, you know, it's dangerous business because people fully realize that if they're going to be kidnapped or if they're being arrested as a runaway, you know, they're going to risk life and limb to uh, keep that from happening. So oftentimes they'd be lied to. So police officers would approach them, you know, knock on the door and say, you're uh, being accused of stealing a watch from a jewelry store on Broadway, you know, last Tuesday. Well, you know, knowing full well that you're not guilty of that crime, you might willingly go along so that you could assert your innocence. And then only when you reach the police station would it be revealed the true nature, nature of the charges that you were being arrested as uh, a runaway slave. So... You know, it's uh, it's a very unfortunate part of the city's history, but one that we need to we need to know, we need to tell, because um, you know, not only does it tell us to some extent that the story of New York City, as well as the story of America, is about freedom and liberty, but also the denial of freedom and liberty. That's part of our history too. But New York seems almost unique. Didn't many northern states and cities make every effort to keep runaways free? You say that in New York the system was rigged against the work of abolitionists. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the political system, the economic system, uh, the legal system, the police force, they're all united uh, against the interests of black lives. And this did happen, you know, the kidnapping of uh, even free people happened all across the North. Uh, my friend Richard Bell has written a book called Stolen, which is about Philadelphia uh, in the 1820s and about how Philadelphia saw the uh, work of, of kidnappers taking black children, especially off the streets of Philadelphia and, and selling them as, as slaves in the South. Um, but the problem, you know, in New York is that there's very little in the way uh, to keep people from being arrested as runaways. The abolitionist community is small. It's very vocal. And I don't mean in any way to diminish uh, their their activism because it's absolutely crucial to eventually, you know, sort of New York becoming a more progressive place. But um you know, they can only do so much. And, uh, you know, particularly when the city's politics and its financial system and its legal system are so clearly uh, stacked up, rigged, uh, if you want to use that word, uh, against uh, the interests of black people. And uh, opponents of, uh, of freeing these uh, runaways, if they were runaways, argued that they, that the, the, uh, 
the rights of, of slaves were being put over the health of the country. That sounds like an argument we've been hearing recently. Yeah, you know, from the perspective of, of New York City's Democrats, including, you know, guys like Riker, they can't even remotely understand why abolitionists would risk the union, right? Because all this goes back to the Constitution. It's the nation's founding document, and it requires northern communities to return runaways in clear black-and-white language. And then that's reinforced with a, with a new bureaucracy that puts teeth in the law in 1850. And from their perspective, this is the price of the union. And not only that, but also the prosperity, the umbrella under which all of their prosperity, you know, is, is, is taking place. So it's just beyond their wildest imaginations how uh, white abolitionists in particular could place black civil rights, uh, the interests of New York's black population. And again, you know, we're only talking about one or two percent of the population. We're talking about 16, 17,000 people in a city that numbers hundreds of thousands. And so why, in their minds, would you risk the Union, anger the white South, uh, jeopardize the cotton trade that is making the city powerful and wealthy just to protect the interests of, of black people? And, uh, you know, they really can't, they really think that the abolitionists are traitors and, and, and um, you know, we, we often remark about how unprecedented our, and polarized our politics are today, but it was pretty darn polarized and pretty darn partisan um, in this period of American history as well. But we have we have federal laws or the Constitution, but we also have state laws, and they're contradictory. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Jonathan Daniel Wells, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show coming to you throughout the week. Again, the number is 516-620-3602. 620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm pleased to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery, and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War by my guest, Jonathan Daniel Wells. But whatever level you are able to show your support for this show and this 100% independent, listener-funded community radio station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep Leonard Lopate at Large coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org on the web. At WBAI, we don't take funding grants or corporate underwriting of any kind. There are no ads and no one tells us what kind of show we should do or can't do. Uh, That's what truly independent media means. So, Please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us to all of you who have shown your support or are about to show your support, thank you very much. Let's get back to my guest, Jonathan Daniel Wells, uh, his latest book, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War, published by Bold Type Books. This is WBAI New York 
99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Although slavery was abolished, at least in theory, in 1827, slave ships still docked at New York harbors, and the Portuguese company was a slave trading business that operated out of downtown Manhattan. How could that be? Yeah, it's really shocking, actually. And not even uh, many sort of well ensconced historians know much about this. Uh, There is uh, some of this in my book, but there's also a new book uh, by John Harris called The Last Slave Ships. And you can also find out more about this uh, in Leslie Harris's book on slavery in pre-Civil War New York City. Were they working illegally? uh, They were. Yeah, it was completely illegal. Um, So one of the things that was also true about the original Constitution is it said If Congress wanted to, 20 years after the Constitution was ratified, Congress could outlaw the transatlantic slave trade, and that's what it does in the early 1800s. So just as the New York Kidnapping Club is waning, you know, particularly because of the institution of jury trials in the 1840s, at the exact same time, we see the rise of New York City as a port in the transatlantic slave trade, which had been rendered illegal a half century before. And this is one of the most startling, uh, I I think, revelations about New York City in this period, along with uh, Havana, Cuba, uh, and ports along the west coast of Africa, New York was engaged in this uh, horrific, nefarious trade. Uh, New York ship's captains uh, took control of slave ships. Uh, New York financiers uh, helped to finance Uh, these voyages. Uh, Merchants helped to outfit uh, the ships for the long voyage to and and from um, Africa. And all this is happening, as you just suggested, uh, right in the heart of Manhattan in the 1850s. And for some, you know, even, even those who didn't really care about slavery even those who weren't really interested in the, the position uh, or um, freedom of black people were horrified that this was taking place in New York City. One of them is a, is a conservative editor new, of a newspaper, a guy named Gerard Halleck, and he edited the Journal of Commerce, which is like you know the Wall Street of our day. Uh, it is the Wall Street Journal of, of uh, this period in American history. And he even he said, look, you know, this is embarrassing. We're allowing this horrific trade to continue uh, with real impunity. So, you know, part of it is the Portuguese company, as it's, as it's called. It's, um, you know, traders and merchants who are using uh, trade in Madeira wine as a cover for what they're really interested in doing, which is, um, you know, helping to finance and, and run the transatlantic slave trade. There's but I, I, I'm, I'm a bit confused. There are some very good ports in the South. Why New York? Well, because that's where the money is. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, New York might as well have been in the South for all political and legal purposes in this period of American history. So um, I think many of your listeners will know, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, that New York City, the city council, actually decides to secede from the Union. In 1861, at the same time that South Carolina and Texas and Florida and Mississippi are withdrawing from the Union uh, to form the Confederacy, New York City does the same thing. They're not intending to join the Confederacy, but they do want to leave the Union, and uh, Lincoln's uh, abolitionist uh, Republican uh, control, and to form their own independent country. So, you know, even though it's physically in the North, politically... It is of the South, and um, that's what allows this to, to continue. It happens in southern ports, too, of course. It happens in New Orleans. Um, it happens in other ports where, you know, the transatlantic slave trade is going on, despite the fact that it's been rendered illegal by Congress. Um, but New York City is surprisingly, shockingly, deeply involved uh, in the transatlantic slave trade. Now, certain events in the city seem to be significant in moving the abolitionist movement forward. What happened in the case of George Kirk, who was a stowaway on a ship headed for New York City? 
Yeah, so there's two cases in the late 1840s, the George Kirk case you mentioned and the case of Joseph Belt. And that's when we see the, the beginning of the, the growing population of New York's white people, especially, coming to understand the, the, the immorality of slavery. And I say white people, of course, because black people in New York City knew full well about the evils of, of slavery and racism. But one of the things I was really interested in this book and in another book I published in 2019 was how white Northerners really shifted their opinion of slavery and the constitutional compromises over slavery. You know, I think when we think about the Civil War, we often think of, well, this is, you know, we, we explain it through the South, right, with the pro-slavery South and secession, and that's why we get war. But also, you know, Northerners, white Northerners, had to come to the conclusion that there was something fundamentally wrong with the Union as well. And uh, this is really interesting, because what we see in Northern communities by the 1850s is their own version of the states' rights argument. In other words, um, they have uh, a belief that if they're going to keep freedom in their states, if they're going to keep slavery out of their state's boundaries— they have to resist the federal government in its attempts to enforce the fugitive slave law. So they're formulating their own state identity, saying, you know, if I'm a resident of Massachusetts and I don't want slavery uh, to be a part of um, our laws, I don't want to be made accomplices to returning runaways. So they're beginning to come to the conclusion that there's something fundamentally wrong with uh, the Constitution's compromises over slavery. And they're not radicals. You know, these are moderate whites. They're fence-sitting. Previously, they might have thought, you know, what do I care about what happens in slavery? I'm up here in New York City. I don't have anything to do with black people or Southern slavery. That's the problem of Southerners to deal with. But when slaves are being kidnapped, when free people are being whisked away from your city's streets, well, you know, it's brought to your doorstep, and you can't claim any longer that it's not something you have nothing to do with. So the Kirk case uh, that you mentioned and, and the Joseph Belt case. and then Well, the Kirk case, the judge decided differently than Richard Riker might have. But then the mayor, right. Andrew Mickle, intervened, and there was a backlash. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's, you know, the internal civil war going on in a lot of northern communities. Um, many of them sort of lining up with the Democratic Party and its conservative uh, views on race and the union, and uh, the emerging Republican Party, which is the more liberal party when it comes to race and, and slavery. And a lot of them are sort of fighting for control of New York City and other cities all across the North, and not just cities, of course, but towns as well. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, experiences this as well. And so um, the Belt case and the Kirk case are, are interesting because you're right. That's when we begin to see some elements in the New York's legal system putting a halt to uh, participating in the Fugitive Slave Clause and later on the Fugitive Slave Law. Um, we'll see the cases of, of James Hamlet as well in 1850, and um, later on, other cases. And, and Northerners, I'm talking about white Northerners in this case, are really getting angry about all this. Because, again, they say, look, we're a free state. We're not South Carolina. Why are we being made to participate in slavery? And so, you know, that they're the also ones that have to come to the conclusion that there's something fundamentally flawed about the American Union, and they contribute to, you know, the outbreak of civil war as well. And, uh, well, first of all, let me tell my listeners that this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jonathan Daniel Wells. His book, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. Well, after the first shots uh, uh, of the Civil War were fired in Fort Sumter in 1861, uh, even Wall Streeters decided that they had to make a choice. Uh, you tell the story of a Wall Street businessman, Alexander T. Stewart, who said, quote, 
All I have of position and wealth I owe to the free institutions of the United States. The government to which these blessings are due calls on her citizens to protect the capital from the threatened assault. So he no longer felt comfortable taking a neutral or, or passive position about the South? Yes, absolutely. You're right. And, and other New Yorkers, uh, many of them wealthy, uh, many of them even Democrats, uh, come to the same conclusion that, you know, now that the shots have been fired at Fort Sumter and civil war has literally broken out, uh, they can't any longer uh, countenance slavery or the Southern secession. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't mean uh, that New York City has undergone the kind of transformation that it will later on, because there are still very racially, you know, sort of reactionary forces in the city all the way through the Civil War and afterward. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to note that, yeah, the, the city, um, you know, celebrates the 7th Regiment uh, and its march through Manhattan. It's a sort of ticker tape parade. And, um, you know, they eagerly join the Union and put away all their thoughts of, uh, you know, possibly withdrawing from the Union and forming their own independent government. Uh, but the next project I'm working on, it's not really a sequel to this book, uh, but it, it is kind of uh, similar in the sense that, you know, we're going to be talking about New York City during the Civil War and afterward. And uh, some of those white supremacist uh, ideas that had dominated the city in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s are going to continue and thrive uh, during the Civil War and afterward. Uh, I'll just give you one quick example, and that is uh, there's a newspaper that's published, you know, again, in the area of Wall Street. And uh, it is a white supremacist newspaper with the unfortunate title of The Weekly Caucasian. And uh, it's published every week in New York City, in the heart of Manhattan, in the 1860s and 70s. It's sent uh, through the postal system all across uh, the Union and in other states. And, um, I mean, it's just the most uh, despicable white supremacist ideology that fills every column every week. And so, you know, it's going to be a longer struggle. Uh, it is true that, in fact, in 1861, New York joins the, the effort against uh, the rebellion in the South. It's also uh, simultaneously true that the forces of racial intransigence and white supremacy are going to continue to thrive in the city even after that takes place. Now, haven't we seen something of a resurgence of white supremacy recently, or is it something that's always been here and just hasn't been apparent? Well, I think it's always been there. Um, but what's happened in the last few years, particularly under the Trump administration, is with a certain population of the country, it's become okay to acknowledge openly your white supremacy. Uh, perhaps social media has facilitated that. Um, I think in some ways, um, even though I'm a historian, that, you know, I think history, historians will look back and find the Republican Party, particularly those in Congress, culpable of making ideological room for this kind of white supremacist ideology um, and not not effectively denouncing it or uh, denigrating it in a way that it should. So I, I think it's always there. Uh, it's always been there. But unfortunately, um, the last four years, uh, the president uh, has, you know, not even subtly. I mean, I think when you use the word or the phrase dog whistle, right, you, you assume it's subtle and 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 not obvious. But I, I think he's been a more overt than that. And I think that's the way historians, you know, 25, 125 years from now, will look back on this period and, and argue. Now, uh, the issue of reparations constantly is brought up. And you write, the question of reparations is fraught, but surely, but surely with the input of historians and many others, we can find a solution that will, in some significant way, attempt to compensate generations of African-Americans, North and South, who have endured the theft of rights and belongings and lives. Um, do you think that's even possible? And right now, there's a good chance that we're going to see a right-wing insurrection. Yeah, um, you know, that's one of the unfortunate, uh, of many unfortunate developments. Um, with COVID 
and uh, with the insurrection at the Capitol, because just a few years ago, and that that was when I was finishing this book a couple of years ago, Ta-Nehisi Coates, a great um, commentator, critic, and, and journalist, was making the case for reparations uh, in front of Congress. And uh, that sort of came as a result in part of his great uh, article in The Atlantic uh, on reparations, which is a wonderful, interesting piece I would recommend to your listeners. And, um, you know, at that point, uh, I think we were almost ready to begin a more substantive conversation, uh, not about whether it's morally justified, because I think that is a question that's settled, um, you know, in my mind at least. Uh, you can't walk away from a book like The Kidnapping Club, I don't think, and have any sense of social justice or racial justice and, and um, you know, come away with any other conclusion that there's a moral imperative to reparation. Um, but, you know, I think, unfortunately, the, the dialogue has gotten waylaid by other issues. But, you know, in time, I think people were, will return to it. And what that looks like, I think, you know, people smarter than me can probably eventually figure out uh, whether it's financial or some other uh, means, whether it's something in the form of an apology or a truth and reconciliation commission. Um, but I, I think the, the moral case is there very clearly, um, at least in my mind and that of many of my colleagues. Unfortunately, we've come uh, run out of time, but I want to thank you. Uh, the book is Jonathan Daniel Wells, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War, published by Bold Type Books. There's lots more in this book. We couldn't get to everything. And also a lot of wonderful illustrations that uh, add to the enjoyment of the book. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Juan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a question or a comment or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to ask you one last time to step up and support Leonard Lopate at large and, and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're the only station on the New York City radio dial that's sponsored 100% by the generosity of our listeners. We don't take ads. We don't take funding grants or anything like that. It's it, it allows us to be a free speech radio. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you on the show, please go right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help ensure that we can keep the show coming to you. Uh, and the best way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to, to keep us running and to show support for what we do on the show. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War by my guest, Jonathan Daniel Wells. Please be sure to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of London Lopate at Large. And a big thanks to everyone who's helping to keep us alive with their generosity. One last time, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give2wbai.org online. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when industrial hygienists and regular contributor to our show, Monona Russell, will discuss the latest developments in the pandemic and how they're affecting efforts to reopen businesses and schools. We'll see you then.